and as a grief counsellor, it's a wonderful lesson, you know, that grief just doesn't go away. You get used to it. It becomes your story. It's not so raw. You know, the volume is turned down on the grief, but it goes on and on and on. And that, in a way, is the good thing about grief, because that is our connection to the person we love and the person we've lost. But it is with us to the day we die. Welcome. My name is Liz Gleason and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals and ordinary people all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives and it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, dust gray hung like jewels in her hair. Welcome back to Shapes of Grief, everybody listening. I am delighted this week to be joined by Katrina Tay and Vendelin McNichol, who are authors of the book Surviving the Tsunami of Grief. You're very welcome, Vendelin and Katrina. Hello, thank you. Your book is absolutely beautiful. It is, you launched about six or eight weeks ago, is that right? Katrina? end of December. It's stunning. And I think I I said to you before we started, if I were to write a book about grief, this is utterly how I would visualize it. The way you've laid it out, it's so accessible. And I think particularly in early grief, you know, being the first year or 18 months, it's very hard to read a wordy book uh, that isn't clearly laid out because our brains go into a bit of a grief fog. And this book is just, it's so inviting. I absolutely love it. So I'm hoping today that we can delve into the reasons why this book was written and perhaps look a little bit at your stories as well. So Vendelin, could we speak with you first and tell us about yeah. how this book came to be? But maybe before that, how do you know each other? Katrina was my buddy at Thames Hospice Care when we both worked there as bereavement counsellors. Um, so that's how we got to know each other and we instantly clicked. We just had a, we instantly knew we were both strong women with an incredibly, a, a real passion and a big heart for the death and, and, and dying. Um, so we've always been in touch after that, even after we stopped working there. And uh, when my mother, sort of five or six years after the death of my father, said one Easter, do you know, I wish there had been a picture book that told me about my grief. Because she said, I thought I was going mad. And I said to her, why didn't you tell us? And she said, well, I didn't want to burden you. And she said, but I couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate. It was just all too difficult. I wished I had been something like a, like a magazine. And that set me thinking. And I remember talking to Katrina. And I remember it to this day. We were talking in my kitchen. And we brainstormed. And we both came to this we can do something about this. We, we know we must be able to translate what we do in a counselling session. We must be able to translate this visually. And and that's how it started. And uh, I remember when we thought about the title, eventually we high-fived when we came up with the tsunami, because that's what people tell us the most. It feels like we're in a tsunami of grief. And 
it, it sort of grew from there. Seven years later, we have a book. It's amazing because in some ways we don't have a language for grief. Yet when I saw you publicizing this, it, something immediately clicked. It was like, oh, tsunami. I hear that all the time in my practice. And people think, you know, it's just me. I feel like a tsunami has crashed over me and I'm being turned around in the ways and I don't know up from down. But actually, a lot of people around the world really do reach for symbol and metaphor to describe their experience of grief because we don't have adequate narrative to describe the, the physicality of it. Um, yeah, great. Thanks for that explanation. And I love that you wrote it because you were listening to somebody who was bereaved. You know, this is what they need, not what I think everybody needs. So uh, it started off as a kitchen table project. Still is. <laughs> Great. So, Katrina, so you were also worked as a, a grief therapist in the hospice? I did, yes. Yes, how, we were part of a bereavement care team. How did you get into this line of work, Katrina? Well, I was a nurse way back in my early teens, and I actually had to stop nursing because I had an accident. But at that time, I had really thought to myself that I felt most comfortable on the oncology ward, strangely, because I was very young. I, I wasn't afraid of it. I felt comfortable there. That that sort of end-of-life care, it didn't really uh, upset me or bother me. And I thought one day I'd really like to work in this area. Anyway, fast forward, you know, life intervenes, you get married, you have children and lived abroad. But when I came back to England, I thought, well, now's the time to do a counselling training. So I did that, but I always had in mind that I wanted to work with grief. And I was very lucky to get accepted into the team at Thames Hospice Care. It was a voluntary team. We worked a lot there. Mm. We could have as many clients as we wanted. So it was a wonderful ground to be learning about uh, palliative counselling, end of life, the relatives working with families a lot. It's a wonderful yeah. ground. And yeah. So, Katrina, back to the accident in your teens and you had to stop nursing. It must have been quite a significant accident. Oh, I, it was a car accident. It actually was quite bad. And I crushed three vertebrae. And in those days, nurses had to lift Liz at the time. And I just yeah. couldn't do it. And uh, now, you know, they have all these wonderful sheets they move people on. They don't do some machines that do the lifting. So, yeah, I, I just couldn't continue. It was too big. And would that have been the first major loss that you experienced in your life, then the loss of your career as a young woman and uh, just the loss of your physical ability as well? Actually, no, because it came at the same time that my brother was killed in a mountaineering accident. Um, back in 1979, just at the time I was sort of coming towards the end of my training. So that was really my first big grief in my life. Um, he was killed on the Matterhorn, on an ascent in the Matterhorn. Yeah. Wow. So you really learned the desperation of grief at a very young age. Yes, I did. Well, I did and I didn't. It, it was a tricky one because, and this was a great, lesson you know for, for, for my work going forward although I didn't you don't know that at the time do you but actually I was more worried about my parents than myself because they were so utterly devastated in very different ways and I felt I had to be um, calm and strong and not show my grief too much and all sorts of difficult family dynamics that happened with that. So I don't think I really touched my grief, the death of my brother, until I was in my 30s when I went into therapy. Okay. And that's, that's a very common experience, isn't it, where children or young people suppress or mute their grief uh, to, to protect their parents. So, Vendeline, you mentioned there that your mother had experienced a bereavement after your father's death. What was your earliest loss? His my father's death in my 30s. And before he died, literally days, just a couple of days before, 
there was a placemat on the table and it was white and he traced the placemat it was an oval placemat with his fingers and he just traced it all the way around till he nearly came to the end and he stopped and he said i'm here and i knew at that moment he was saying i'm near you know when he if he had moved his fingers a little bit further along the line they would have met and that and he said in this metaphorical way i'm nearly there i'm, I'm close to death and i heard it i remember saying you're dying aren't you you're nearly there and and that was the beginning of me realizing, like Katrina sort of realized, I can do this. I, it, it, it seemed so natural to me. I wasn't frightened about it. I wasn't frightened of it. And I sort of was able to talk to him two days before he died. And that was so precious. And it continued on from there. Um, I started reading about it. Um, it wasn't obviously till many, many years later that my mother told me this. But I thought I'm, I want to do something, and I read a book by the French psychologist Marie de Hennezel, and it's called uh, um, The Intimate Death. And oh, yeah. when I read that book, I knew I came home. It just resonated with me on every level, and from there I went on. But my father's death, and it was in Holland, it was by euthanasia, so it's a very different experience that I had from many other people. It was absolutely beautiful. We were all there. It was The doctor was there. It was just, just a beautiful experience. So I'm, I'm very lucky to have had that and to build on that for the rest of my years, till I hope my dying day. Because you keep learning, don't you? Absolutely. What a What a beautiful gift to be able to acknowledge what he was trying to say to you and put words on it because mm. so many of us you know we think that we're doing the right thing by saying oh don't be silly or don't talk about that or you'll be fine it takes a certain type of person to be able to name that and and hear that we've never talked about euthanasia on the podcast before it's um you know, it's not an option in Ireland, and I know there's a few European countries where it is. Would you tell us a little bit about the process that came up, you know, that preceded your father's death? It was his decision, and I think that has to be made very, very clear. Um, it was, it is beautifully done in Holland. It's very carefully done. Um, two GPs have to uh, speak to the, the person that would like to have euthanasia done so there is no influence from outsiders uh it just isn't done willy-nilly it's done incredibly thoughtfully carefully there are obviously incredibly um, strict procedures i have lived outside of holland for a long long time now but i know my brother is terminally ill and he has signed his euthanasia papers it may never happen it may never people may never use it but the fact that for a lot of people it's there is very comforting and having experienced it twice within my family they were beautiful deaths very planned and calm and the person who wanted to die was really they are always at the end they are always very very they're always nearly there it's not okay they're tired let's let's do it now it, it you know, it's it's really towards the end of life where they decide it's enough for them. And in my father's case, it was a beautiful um, farewell. And his doctor was so compassionate. And I think that word compassion is never mentioned with euthanasia. And I think it, it needs to come back. It, mm. You need to link these words because it can be a very compassionate act. And in the old days, you know, sometimes a doctor might give a little bit of extra sedation just to help someone to be more peaceful. You know, it, 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 it's, it's a bit like grief is coming out of its self-isolation because of COVID. Maybe euthanasia one day will come out of its isolation when people start talking about it and actually take the fear out of it a little bit. Yeah, there's a... Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices 
that can help us to navigate the grieving process. To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. Certainly a moral debate. So, Vendeline, staying with your father, do you know why he chose this way to die? Did he have an illness? Um, he was worried about letting his body take a natural course of death, was he? Yes, and I think also because there weren't any hospices. There wasn't really end-of-life care now. Whereas in Holland now you have hospices, end-of-life care is brilliant, even in hospitals. Uh, I think he wanted to end it on a high when he was still with us. And that is exactly what happened. He would have died a few days later anyway. But he was very conscious. He was with us. It was a really beautiful farewell everybody said what they needed to say he he was totally at peace he was that sort of man he he had really thought about it long and hard and had endless conversations with his gp and and with us and and but it it is it was ultimately his wish and we were we were pleased that we could honor his wish and in the UK, where you live now, um, euthanasia is not legal. So are you still working in palliative care? And how is that for you, having seen a beautiful, compassionate death? Where does that sit with you in the UK? Very simple. It's not allowed here. It's not legal. Uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I live here. This is my home. This is my country. This is where I live. I adhere to this country's rules around that. People obviously ask me about it, not because I'm Dutch, they just do. A lot of people say, I wish I could end it. I wish someone would help me die. I hear it, I just hear it. And of course, as a professional, you never talk about your own experiences. Um, this is probably the first time I've actually spoken about this publicly. Katrina and I've discussed it and we talk about it, but. No, that's always very much in the background because I live here. If, I, if I'm in Holland, then I am probably slightly different because I'm very comfortable with it and how it's done because I know how it's done and I know how careful the legislation is and, and how compassionate it can be done. And I'm glad that people can have that opportunity. I want it for myself too. I would love it. Whether I use it or not is a different matter, but that. Yeah feeling that you have a little bit more say in, in how you want it. And I'm sure this is going to upset a lot of people, but it's happening. It has always happened. It maybe has to come out of the shadows a little bit. We need to talk. Always talking, as my father always said, keep talking. Yeah, it's a perspective and it's a view and it needs to be looked at, absolutely. And for some people, it'll be a big no-no. And for others, it's definitely a consideration. So, Vendeline, um, your work now in palliative care in the UK, how is that for you to be with people who are dying? I find that the most humbling work, the most beautiful work, and if I say it in a few words, it's literally because you're living at your best. You're living at your deepest, most intense you're alive you're alive till the moment you die and to be part of someone's very alive end is 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 beautiful it never ceases to amaze me how uplifted i am by it how how people who trust you with their innermost thoughts and feelings it brings out the best in the person you're with if you allow them to 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 speak, to say what they need to say, you make their um, ending very, very special, their last day is very special by hearing. And it's often, it could be just a tiny snippet. It doesn't, it's not an hour long counseling session. It's hearing them talk and then you pick up one or two things and that's about all they can process. But to be able to pick that up for them is being heard. And the privilege of accompanying somebody at that stage of their life, as you said. 
So Katrina, I might move over to you now and and your work nowadays. Are you dealing more with grief or palliative care? Well, I'm I'm not doing grief counselling anymore. Um, I stopped about two years ago because um, I really decided that I wanted to work more with end of life. So I retrained um, with Living Well, Dying Well to become an end of life doula. And now I'm uh, being trained to teach those courses. So my direction is taking that way down that sort of line. You know, well, I, I do teach grief. It's, it's always my, my first passion. But I think interestingly, I don't know what you think, Liz, but when you've been a grief counsellor and just following on really what Wendelin was saying and you will know, there's a sort of idea that when you work with grief and bereavement, that there's going to be an awful lot of sadness and it's just going to be sad, sad, sad. And people say, how could you possibly do that? But I've always felt that you see all of life in the counselling room when you're working with grief. There is nothing that isn't included. Yeah. And at end of life as well. So they're very aligned, those two different types of work. But when you're a doula, as I am now, you 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 just go around the world in, in your world doing what you do and death and dying and grief come to me through conversations just I could be standing at the bus stop I meet people I talk to people I help people where I can sometimes I have clients at the moment the um, end of life doula UK is running a helpline about 40 plus doulas so we're there talking to people at this time that's so difficult during COVID so I, I go about my my daily life thinking about these things deeply and they just come to me. I can't explain it. I think Wendlin feels the same. Um, writing our book has been such a large part of that. And, and one of the things that I think we really wanted to get across in the book, which I think sometimes doesn't come across so, so much in personal stories that are books, because it's one person's experience. We wanted to show the multitude of experiences that people have in grief because it's really wide and varied. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think, you know, speaking about a positive death or a good death or a compassionate death, we know that that can have a positive effect on the way a bereavement goes or bereavement outcomes, but it doesn't take away the grief. The grief is still there, um, even if our loved ones have died beautifully or gently or with compassion. So will you speak a little bit about your experience of of grief, Katrina, and how it was for you after your your brother died. I mean, you did say that you protected your parents and put your own grief on pause until you entered counselling. What did it look mm. like when it re-emerged? Or, or how did it well, manifest yeah. in those years where it wasn't expressed? Well, it's been a very, very complicated journey, Liz, and a very varied one. In the beginning, as I mentioned, I did really try to hold myself together for my parents. I can say that, I, I don't know what my sister would say, but I felt uh, very upset that my parents were very obsessed with my brother. I mean, as an older woman and a mother and a grandmother, I do totally understand that now. And I know so much more. Bear in mind, I was 21 at the time. So that that was extremely uh, difficult for me. But the thing that actually started me on my grief journey was a friend ringing me and saying, oh, my mother died. And I said, oh, that's that's terrible. I'm, I'm very sorry. And we had a chat and then we put down the phone and two weeks later, she rang me back and berated me very loudly for being uncaring. And didn't I understand that her mother had died? And I realized that I had avoided the death of her mother by sort of 
exiting stage left, really, if you like. And I was so shocked by her reaction that me to therapy. And in the therapy, I realized that I just had not grieved. I had literally put it on hold for 10 years. And when it came, it was a sort of volcanic, you know, I just couldn't believe there were all these feelings in me and where they'd been and what was going on. And so that was quite a difficult few years because I had small children. I was trying to cope with that. But then um, 35 years after my brother died, uh, I should just, sorry, backtrack by saying that when he had this accident on the Matterhorn, he was actually lost on the mountain. His body was never recovered. They actually found him, part of him, and some of his clothes. It was an extraordinary story because he was identified by a name tape in his underwear, which my mother had sewn on for school. Wow. So my sister and I went out to, to Sion to see the forensic pathologist. We did DNA um, and we did have time with my brother's remains, some remains. Um, and extraordinarily, Liz, um, his hand, which had been inside a very good glove, had become mummified. And so my sister and I, you know, we were able to hold his hand all those years later. And that followed a short time after where the town of Zermatt were very, very kind to us and allowed us to inter those remains into a grave that he had in the grave's climb, climber's graveyard, sorry. But going back to the grief, that just brought it all up again. So I'm and just going to pause you there because I'm still left with you holding his hand yeah. years later. Yes. That's extraordinary. Will you tell us a little bit about that process, Katrina? You know, I know of some people who don't want to see their loved one's remains an hour after they've died, never mind a few years later. It's extraordinary courage to choose to do that, I think. Oh, really? tell, tell me about what that was like for you, yeah. No, I, I think, again, you know, we were talking, weren't we, just before we started about stories and what stories we have I think it must I don't know I can only speak for myself but I feel that losing somebody literally not having a body you know people who are murdered children that are abducted or these terrible things that happen where you don't have the closure of a body being interred whether it's cremated or buried is such a wound in one that in the end, you get used to that, and that's your story. But to get a second chance is such a gift, I felt, you know, because you always wonder, where was he? Yes. And, and even my mother, after he died, said, well, he might not have died. He might have got down the mountain. Well, we knew he hadn't. So you get this chance to find out the end of the story. That's the point, I think. And um, when we went to Sion, we didn't know we were going to see his remains. We didn't set off with that in mind. They wanted to take DNA and they wanted to talk to us about what had happened. Were we really his sisters and that sort of thing? But then she said, you know, we have this chance to do that. And we were asked to leave the room and then they had a box. And they took out what they had and they took out all the equipment that they had found with him. And we we knew that jacket and those trousers and the different things that there were because we actually had a photograph randomly taken by the climber who was with him. So we knew what he was wearing on the day they set off. And anyway, it had name tapes on, so, you know. It was a, a given. We didn't know there was going to be a hand. I didn't know I was going to hold my brother's hand. But at the time, it, it wasn't gruesome. It was just dry and it was sort of curved. And you just wanted like a baby. You just wanted to put your hand in that hand and say, here you are. 
and now I can say goodbye to you. And it was incredibly natural. I know maybe from somebody's listening perspective, that sounds gruesome or strange or weird, but it was the most natural thing in the whole world. And it just felt brilliant, quite hard to get your head around at the time. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I could say about it. My feelings afterwards were very tumultuous, I must say. Um, that was a whole different story. But in the moment, during that time, having that time with my sister, both my parents um, had died by then. Okay. was really precious. Yeah. You lost both your parents and your brother in, in that decade. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. when you say it was quite tumultuous afterwards, what was that about? Just the changing of the narrative or the fitting in the pieces? Um, I don't even know what it was about. Well, part of it, well, part of it, again, you know, coming back to that idea of stories and children in families having different stories about a death in the family or anybody, a mother, father, any relative might have a different story. I think my sister and I, both felt very good about putting him to rest in the graveyard. That that felt whole and complete. But I felt very angry afterwards because the thing that people kept saying to me is, oh, well, you've got closure now. Honestly, I, I could have slapped them, really. <laughs> well, you, and, and you mentioned the word closure earlier, but it was within the context of I know where his body is. I know what happened to him. We know the the end of the story to a degree but yeah. that's not closure of grief or your process grief. yeah it's very different closure of a particular episode doesn't mean closure of your experience of your loss far from that it. is exactly it liz that's exactly the point because the grief just started all over again yeah. like day one it was an extraordinary thing and and as a grief counselor it's a wonderful lesson you know that grief just doesn't go away you get used to it it becomes your story it's not so raw you know the volume is turned down on the grief but it goes on and on and on and that in a way is the good thing about grief because that is our connection to the person we love and the person we've lost but it is with us to the day we die and i love katrina that you know, that you've said holding your brother's hand was the most natural thing to do. And you're right, you know, people will have a reaction listening to that. But it's so important that we normalize these things, you know, bones and flesh, that we're all made of bones and flesh. And that's who we are when we're alive. And that's who we are when we're dead. And I've had that experience talking with people on the podcast, where they say, I've never told anyone this, but... And, you know, they're afraid of the judgment of what somebody might think about perhaps the way that they they were with their loved one's body or maybe they held their child who had died for 48 hours after the child had died. Or we can't just switch off because life has finished, you know, when our loved one is still there or some representation of them. You know, in many cultures, people still touch and hold and are with the body i think in some places in south america they they keep the body in the living room for for years and decades um until it mummifies and and their deceased loved one remains part of their family in a physical way not just in an emotional way so it's so important like speaking with vendeline about euthanasia that we just are open-minded when it comes to dying, death and grief, there isn't a right way. And we have sanitized it a lot. We've put it away into hospitals or, you know, just like birth, you know, ah, oh, there's a beautiful baby. And we don't tell the story of the 24 hours of, you know, agony <laughs> and ripped flesh that, that preceded this arrival. And I think similar, similarly for death, we need mm -hmm. to talk about these things. Yeah, thank you for that. So let's move to the book. And Vendelina, might go back to you. This book was born from your mother's unexpressed need to have a picture book or expressed five years after your father died. 
how, what was the process like and how did you come to decide what would be in it? I hear that you've, you've included a whole range of grief experiences, not just your own. There's 7 billion potential grief experiences, right? Um, Correct. But, but yet there's a lot more in common when it comes to grief than there is different. Would you speak to that a little bit, Vendelin? I think we wanted to normalize it. As you said earlier, uh, people have said to us, I've never told this to anyone before. It's those sort of things. I think I'm going mad. It, it has been a long process. Katrina and I have been going backwards and forwards over the, probably five or six years. And eventually we realized if we made it into bereavement counseling sessions, we know that the second year is often worse than the first year. So we wanted to we wanted to make something that people like a handbook, like a guide, like something that normalized it for them, and that would continue. Like it could be a book that you could pick up ten years after bereavement, and you could still see something in it. We wanted to get away from the phases, from all the models that are where we wanted. We looked at every single grief book i think on amazon in every library we couldn't find a, an, a book that was illustrated for adults and i remember breaking my shoulder in in uh, in january and i was sort of sitting at home for six weeks couldn't do anything couldn't drive couldn't go to my counseling clients and i then started looking online for uh, illustrators and what was really lovely is that eventually i i picked 10 and this is how we work. I sent them to Katrina. I said, here are 10 illustrators. I think I just wonderful, which could work for our book. But I have a number one. And she then looked at it and studied them all, looked at my 10, and came back with exactly the same number one. So there we had Ruth Thorpe. And that was another step in, in the direction of finding the illustrator that, that we wanted. We called Ruth, we sent her the manuscript. She, I remember her telling us she cried on the train when she read it. And she said, I'd love to be involved. We then drove to Bath, got lost on the way, I think, because we were always talking and then you know, got, took the wrong turn off. Met Ruth. And again, we met the right person. The three of us clicked. And so Ruth started illustrating chapter after chapter. And as Ruth came up with the most beautiful illustrations, we either asked her to put some more depth in it or to put some more light in it. So the book starts off quite a normal, everyday color, but it goes deeper, it goes darker, and then it goes lighter again to sort of symbolize hope. And Ruth picked up all the nuances beautifully, time after time after time, and it also became easier for us then to start filling in the chapters with what a bereaved has told us. And, and we concentrated on what we heard the most. Um, and that's really the process, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, in our kitchens, in our behind our computers, endless reams of paper we've wasted. Um, we've done tons of research. We've spoken to lots of people. But what we both were passionate about is this book is, they are real experiences. They are real people with raw, raw grief. And we wanted to honor them somehow. We, we knew we could do something to help people understand that it's normal. But in short sentences, so they could just identify with what it was mm. that is important for them. Mm. And, you know, one person told us, I never told anyone this, but it's in your book and the shame has been taken away overnight because I realize I'm no longer on my own. Yeah. So the reactions we have got from people who are bereaved have been phenomenal. They have mm. been so moving. This book is on people's bedside. We've had letters, we've had emails thanking us because it's out of, it, it's normalized it, I think, for them. Yeah. And you mentioned there, Vendeline, that you, you wanted to stay away from models and phases. Would you speak about that a little bit? Uh, I, I run a bereavement group for uh, the Rosemary Foundation, which is a wonderful hospice at home in Hampshire. Um, and I help, I, obviously I use some models to teach people what bereavement is, how it started with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who we owe 
a phenomenal amount to, but of course she was end of life. It wasn't, you know, and so you explain to people that it's no longer, the stages are not following each other. It's, I then used the dual process to just help people understand what models there are, William Word, and I go over it quite quickly. Um, I use our own tsunami of grief now, um, but I always say to people, how do you how do you want to go forward with your loved one? We don't want to move on from them. How can we take them forward with us? And then I go back to the group and you hear time and time again, no, they don't want to move on. They want to go forward. So all those models have helped us give a structure. Everybody that's done any bereavement research, you know, we stand on their shoulders. We, we've just taken a slightly different route with our book. Nobody knows, only the person that's bereaved. They are the experts. And I think we need to remember that. I think it's, you know, for, for anybody working, supporting grief, it's great to know, you know, Warden's work and the dual process model and continuous bonds. However, we need to find a, a symbolic and metaphorical language that resonates with the people we're supporting. Um, so is there anything that you absolutely love about the book, Vendeline? Or uh, let me rephrase that. What do you absolutely love about the book? I can tell that this is your baby. It, I think it's it's because Katrina and I have written this book through when Katrina's, you know, when Jonathan, her brother's body was found. That was at the same time when my daughter had a kidney transplant. So what the two of us have been through together we have supported each other in ways that no, I, I don't know if I didn't have Katrina at that time or she didn't have me because we could be utterly, utterly vulnerable with each other. And yet we were held in each other's strength. We are both. And now I feel quite emotional because this book has been brought. It's, it's, a, it's been a passion for both of us. We have worked on this and our families will, will, will tell you that. We've never given up. Ever, 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 we knew we had a vision and a mission, but it's it's been wrought through incredible depths. I wouldn't want to say depths, but really painful periods in our own lives and highlights of daughters getting married. I mean, we've had incredible highlights as well. So the book is written from our own experiences, from the people we work for, because I want to say we work for people that are grieving. We work for them. We, we assist them. We accompany them. So this book is, is, is my soul is in that. I think that's, Beautiful. I don't know, Katrina, probably you need to ask her too. <laughs> the passion really comes across and the depth of what you've put into this. I think I feel like as I'm holding it here in front of you, it feels like a privilege. It feels like, you know, like you say, your heart and soul is is in the lines of this book. Feels like a gift. Absolutely. Could because you... every word that people have said in that book, every sentence we have heard, we have, and it's not just a sentence. It's not just a story. It's someone's raw pain. It's someone you set alongside. It's someone's experience, and I think that is what this book is. It, it that's why it's so precious to me. Would you read out a little part of the book, Vandalin? So chapter four, the powerful surge of the incoming wave. While you are still reeling from the shock of the death, the waves of the tsunami come surging in through your beach and you find yourself struggling to stay afloat above the maelstrom. Every fibre of your body is experiencing the loss and it is affecting everything. This is a time when you can feel truly overwhelmed by the loss, as it manifests itself in every area of your life. This is the time our clients mention the words tsunami of grief to us the most. During this daunting period, difficulties with your loved one may have helped you to cope with or issues you may never have spoken about before can surface. And this is entirely normal and expected. And I just, I just love that last line. This is entirely normal. People need to hear that over and over again. It's just like your mother said, I thought I was going crazy. 
you know, it's such a common experience. Thank you so much, Vendeline, for that. It's lovely. And Katrina, what about you? Over to you. Is there a particular part of the book that you feel drawn to when you're asked to read part of it? Okay, so this is chapter seven. We call it the new normal. And it's really at the period when life is getting back to normality, but everything is ultimately changed. And how do we adjust to that? Your beach has gradually come back to life. While the sands have shifted and the patterns have altered, the pebbles, shells and seaweed once more line the seashore as if nothing had ever happened. Yet you know something did happen and the core of your being has been shaken. What you may have taken for granted before has come back into focus and you look at life through a different lens now and it holds more meaning. You notice that the sea grasses are waving again and the sky seems brighter. Once again you hear the waves of the seagulls and you inhale the tang of the salty sea air more deeply. You can see that you and your life have expanded around your grief in ways you could not have anticipated previously. Without you even realising it, this altered beach has slowly and painstakingly revealed itself to you as your new normal. As you look across the sea, you feel open to what is yet to come. Mm. And this is towards the end of the book where the colour is starting to come back into the illustrations. If you were to say, Katrina, three things about grief that a lot of people don't know unless they've experienced grief, what would come to mind? There's often a lot of anger. That it can feel as if it's gone away, but it can come back at any time unbidden and that it is the most natural and normal thing in the world. Well done for being put on the spot and coming up with those three really good answers. It's so true as well. What about you, Vendeline? Same question. What three things do you think people often don't know about grief when they haven't experienced it? Um, that they're very frightened of, their, of the, the onslaught, of the, the fear of grief, the pain, the rawness but that they can manage it they can go they need to experience the pain of grieving they really do need to experience that in order to feel a bit lighter the next day even though it's very difficult the rawness of grief the fact that the second year people always find harder than the first it takes them by surprise and the third one i don't know they're just they are the experts and i think i've found in bereavement counseling not everybody needs it by, by, you know, they just don't. Lots of people get support from family, friends, church communities, communities. The ones that come to us, you realize after a few sessions in, there is something that maybe the loved one kept in check. And then when that loved one has died, that issue comes bubbling up and they're then vulnerable alone. And it comes up, it's been hidden for years. And I think bereavement counselling is very much something you do on two strands. It's the bereavement, the vulnerability of the bereavement, and it's dealing with previously deeply, deeply buried issue. And I think that's what I find is so beautiful about this work. It's working on, on two strands. I mean, couldn't get better than that as a counsellor, I think. It's so moving to help someone on both those, with both those elements. It's so true. It's uh, that piece that you just read there as well. You know, it shows that everything has changed. Every fiber of your body, every relationship you have, the way you are with the world. Um, and, you know, yeah, if you're sitting on uh, anxiety or OCD or an eating disorder or a uh, struggle with addiction, all of these things can really come up to the surface uh, when faced with the tsunami of grief. Vendeline, you mentioned twice that the second year is harder than the first. Would you explain that a little better, why you think that is? I think I've just had, I experienced that again the other day with someone. They had worked towards the first anniversary of the, the, 
the birthdays. Uh, in this case, it was Easter, but for many people it's Christmas, and they really make an effort. They go to the grave, they make a little altar, they they make an effort, they get people round. Most people still remember it's the first anniversary. It, you know, most people are still involved in your life to an extent. And then it comes to the second anniversary, and they wake up the next day, and they realize it's going to happen all over again. And they're never going to come back. And no matter how much you do for the second anniversary, the realization of the reality of the loss then really kicks in. Yeah. I think it's, 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 you know, the first year people have something to hold on to, to plan a birthday or to plan an anniversary. But they realize come the second year, that is no longer possible. Yeah, I think also there's an element of um, the cortisol and adrenaline of the stress of your grief is propelling you through first year and you're focusing on surviving, getting through the birthday, getting through Christmas. And, you know, you still have a lot of hormones that are maybe helping you to be a little bit numbed as well. And you get through it. And then it's like, you can come back now. I've done that. And I think it's the permanence then hits, doesn't it? And, and often there's a sadness that comes in with that. Uh, Katrina, what would you say about that? Yeah. I just wanted to add something to that, which is I think a lot of the support drops off in the second year for various reasons. Other people don't have such intense grief. Some family members deal with it better, maybe come through the difficult part a bit quicker. Friends um drift away you know that terrible saying that seems to be true that grief rearranges your address book some friends drop away and there's a level of boredom about your grief you know or that you don't want to impart your continuing grief upon people you might even project or imagine that they feel very fed up with you or they don't want to hear your story again you want to tell it again it's part of your core it's part of your heart so I think that lack of support in the second year can be very difficult it's not true for everybody of course it is not some lucky people will have wonderful friends and family that carry them through but it can be a very isolating time the second year when you see other people moving on there's one thing in the book um, that somebody once said to me. I never forgot it. Um, she said, I want to put my husband on a cloud so everybody can see him because I think they're forgetting him. And it's that sort of thing that is particularly hard in the second year. Yeah. Because par partly that is true. Yeah, absolutely. People stop saying their name because they don't want to upset you. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. We love to hear the names of our deceased loved ones mentioned over and over again. It's like moving forward in life with them. They're still still part of the conversation. I think as well on that, people moving away or you mentioned, you know, the, the address book of your, was it the address book that you said? Um, yeah. I would often use the Christmas card list shrinks considerably after a bereavement, you know, who's been there and who hasn't. What do you think that is about people that certain people really get loss and how painful it is and others just don't get it at all, even if they've been through a loss themselves? Um, well, one thing I've always thought about it and I do tell people, it's not about you, the grieving one. It's about them. It's about their own reaction to grief. So it may be that nobody ever died in their life to date. Lucky them, you know, very, very lucky. Uh, so they haven't experienced grief. So they may not have an understanding of it. I think that, again, coming back to the idea that so many people will have a different experience of various griefs in their life. Some may be terrible. Some may be quite e easy to get through. 
as Wendelin said earlier. So it probably depends on the level of grief, but I think that it's not everybody has the heart for it. And if they haven't had it modeled to them either by their parents, we, Wendelin and I talk a lot about this. We feel that if your parents or your aunts and uncles or even siblings model a way of being with grief that is open and it's spoken about and those sorts of things, that you will then model that yourself to your own family and and hold it within yourself. So it's about, I do feel quite passionately about teaching people to grieve. And I think that's one of the lovely things that you can say to people is, people who are listening, it's okay to open up about grief. You're doing us all a great service. You're teaching us and those around you how to be with grief. But some people will, will nevertheless, you know, be a bit, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, fingers in, yeah. in the ears. And it's very hard, isn't it? To sit it is. And I think if you're somebody who maybe has the maturity to understand that, okay, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. And to forgive them for that, that's great. But coming back to something we were talking about earlier, Vendeline, you know, how there's the primary grief and then all sorts of other things can bubble up and something that I have experienced personally and I would sit with a lot in my grief therapy sessions is when the anger takes over or the criticism or the judgment, they weren't there, they're not helping me, they, you know, and suddenly the grief work becomes all about these terrible friends and family members who have left me alone. And suddenly we become our own worst enemy in our grieving process and we're adding to the the, the the critical inner voice, we're adding to the stress, adding to the cortisol and the adrenaline and maybe getting stuck in anger and resentment rather than letting our grief move through us um, and, and growing from it, if you like. I, I don't know if I've explained that very well. Would you take over? You're nodding, Vendeline, so take over yeah. from me there, please. I think you already said it perfectly. It's the growing from it. And that is what I help my clients with. I will just say to them, remember, you had this friend when your loved one was still alive. Everything was normal. You know, you were a friend to both of them. He or she died. And suddenly you're doing everything by yourself. I then ask them to look back after, say, eight months to how much have you done? How much have you learned in that time? And I really asked them either to write it down or we sit down and go through it. And they go, wow, I really have done a lot. And so I validate the journey they've taken and the things they have done that they would have never done before, thought about, organized. And then I say, and now when you think of your friends, are you on the same wavelength as you were before your loved one died? And they all nod and go, no. And then I don't need to say any more because they then understand that they have grown, but they don't equate the growth of at that time with the changing of the address book. They still think it's that person has left them. But in reality, they are then finding the people that are on the same wavelength to go forward with. They they're finding other people. So the address book probably has to be emptied a bit in order to find people that have grown through grief as well, like you have, and that you speak the same language. And that can be quite a painful process to realize that every time I'm talking to somebody, we are talking on totally different wavelengths, someone who maybe we're formerly very close to. Um, I think we do definitely grow from from grief and from any big event in our lives. You know, you mentioned your daughter had a kidney transplant. You know, it, it everything is up for renegotiation when we go through events like that. Um, and it does shift up the address book and not all the names fall back into it. And then, like you say, it's really important to look at who does show up, who is there, who is texting saying, do you want to meet for coffee on Wednesday morning? 
rather than who isn't. It's too easy to focus on who isn't and it doesn't do us any yeah, good. Katrina and I have also written in the book because we have both noted it's always the unexpected person. So often it's the person you least expect that comes forward and becomes the person that gives you the most support. But people don't know that yet. They need to experience that and need to trust that they are also more resilient than they think they are. I, I validate that a lot. So we're just going to finish up now, coming to the end. Um, Shapes of Grief has a lot of listeners. The podcast has been listened to nearly 40,000 times since I started it last year. And most people are listening because they're dealing with grief. They're going through grief and they want to understand and hear other people's stories. What would you say to somebody listening today who is at the beginning of their grieving journey? Uh, Katrina, I'll start with you. I think firstly, I'd say I'm so deeply sorry for your loss. This is a very painful and difficult time and I have a lot of heart for that. Go seek the support you need. Ask for help. People really do want to help. Sometimes they don't know how to do it. So tell them, tell them what you'd like. If you need counseling, go and get it. If you need a book, find one that speaks to you. Of course, we think ours is fabulous. <laughs> you know, find a book that speaks to you. It will be the right one. That's what I would say. That's I don't know what you'd say, Wendell. <laughs> Let us hold the hope for you. The hope that things can be okay again. Different, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you both so much. It's really been a privilege to hear your experiences and your stories. And I really feel genuinely the heart and soul that you've put into this book. I absolutely love it and really recommend it to anybody listening. Where can the book be bought? It's YPD. It's on our website. It's uh, tsunamiofgrief.com. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can now find it quite widely. YPD is our publisher. Super. Well, in the podcast description, I'll put some links um, to where the book can be bought. Congratulations. You know, lots of us, including me, have um, dreams for projects that have never been executed. And you did it. And you saw it through. So uh, as long as someone's doing it, it's great. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, really beautiful and well worth buying to anybody who wants to really ex understand better what grief can look and feel like. Practical tips in there of what's helpful, what's not helpful, what you may be feeling physically, spiritually, what you might be going through at any different phase during your grief. So uh, it really is useful for both people who are experiencing grief and those who are hoping to support them. So Katrina, thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting with you, Wendelin. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. And Wendelin, gorgeous you. to meet thank you. Thank you for allowing us into your home through Zoom. It's been yes. really nice. Thank you. And your podcasts are amazing. What you do, like our book, that is your project, isn't it, that you've seen through. I, maybe, I would have loved to have said that at the end of, of our radio interview because what you do is extraordinary. It's, it's wonderful. Ah, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's such a privilege. I get up on a Friday morning and I get to meet amazing women like you. It's as good as going for a 20k run in terms of the feel-good factor afterwards. I'm full of admiration and awe for what us humans can do. Um, yeah, so it's been really, really lovely to meet you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice and if your grief is making you unwell please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human, you're not alone. Once again please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener supported podcast and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. 
Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. The spray hung like jewels in her hair. Parting, so fierce is the warring of love.